I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and this is my first sermon on the topic from a C to an A Christian, in which one of my points is that Christians have to be vigilant to be neither disdainful of nor angry with one another in order to overcome evil with good. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on uh, this 8th day of January 2012, an unseasonably beautiful day here in Lansing, Michigan, during the week in which the Michigan State University and University of Michigan football teams both won their bowl games in overtime, but the Detroit Lions, in their first NFL playoff game in 10 years, lost to the New Orleans Saints. Well, thank you for coming out to hear our first sermon for the year of 2012. We are starting a new series entitled, From a C to an A Christian. Now our text for this first sermon is in Numbers chapter 20, verse 10 and 11, which says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. And now, our gracious and heavenly Father, be pleased to please let us preach your word, not for fame or for reputation, but to the end that some might be made better, that some might benefit, that some might believe, and that some might be saved. We thank you, Lord, for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit. And we ask you to let him feed us until we want no more. In the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Now. Thank you for listening and thinking with me as we study God's word to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on from a C to an A Christian comes from Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 which tells us to do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now this topic for our new series comes from my wife, who asked me if we could investigate how those that consider ourselves good Christians can improve our Christianity from a C to an A. We good Christians have saving faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, come to church on a regular basis, do our best to avoid public sin, read our Bibles, and consider that which the Lord tells us to do before we make decisions that we perceive to be spiritual in nature. 
So the question becomes, what more can we do to participate in the kingdom of God? Now, in this first sermon on this topic, I decided to spotlight the failure of a biblical character that falls into the good category. A man who was in leadership in the Lord's earthly organization, but whose negative reaction to provocation caused him to lose his earthly position in the Lord's government. Now, it seems to me that while our primary level of growth in Christianity is reflected by our ability to avoid sinfulness, our Christian maturity is reflected in our reaction to provocation by our fellow man. The Apostle Paul, the intellectual leader of the first century Christian church, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. Now, as Christians, we are all aware of the life of Jesus Christ, who walked the streets of Palestine for three and a half years, doing nothing but good for every man with whom he came into contact. Jesus' benevolence notwithstanding, Jesus Christ found himself the target of the wrath of the Jewish religious leadership of the day. And while Jesus had the demonstrated power to decimate his opponents, Jesus chose to not use his power to react to their provocation because Jesus had a greater purpose in mind than to get even with those that were tormenting him. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 through 54, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Now my conclusion from the scripture is that the key to being a more mature Christian than one that simply follows the negative commandments, meaning the thou shalt nots, is to recognize, as did Jesus Christ, that we have a greater purpose on earth than to simply obtain personal emotional satisfaction. We develop Christian maturity by deciding to take the heart the fact that our job here is to represent the Lord, especially to those that provoke us, and to decide to exercise the restraint required to do so. Jesus specified that our focus ought be the will of God rather than our own in the model prayer. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 in which he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, while keeping the negative commandments is an admirable goal, participating in the kingdom of God requires more than avoiding those things that we ought not do. Participating in the kingdom of God means that we should actively do those things that Jesus did, especially in his sacrifice for us. Now, the protagonist of our text for today 
was a man that was brought into this world specifically for the purpose of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Moses was an anomaly when he was born, a male Hebrew child that survived infancy during the persecution of Hebrew boy babies by the Pharaoh in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1 verses 8, 15 through 18 and 22 tell us, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra and the other Pua, and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill it. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now, neither abortion nor infanticide are 20th century concepts. Killing helpless unborn or newborn babies is a sin that has been around for a long time. But Moses' mother was shrewd enough to save Moses' life while complying with the letter of the Pharaoh's command. She cast Moses into the river inside of a little boat that she built for the purpose and floated him down to the Pharaoh's daughter who took pity on the crying Moses and decided to raise him as her own. Now at his birth, God predestined his child to be the leader of the Hebrews 80 years later. Moses was not just saved from death, but was also given the best education possible in the house of the Pharaoh. And although having been trained as an Egyptian prince, Moses maintained his allegiance to the Hebrews because when the Pharaoh's daughter found Moses on the water, she hired Moses' Hebrew birth mother to be his wet nurse. So Moses was raised by his birth mother to be a Hebrew until she turned Moses over to the Pharaoh's daughter. And even as an adult, Moses never lost his connection to his slave roots. Exodus chapter 2 verse 11 and 12 tells us, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now Moses considered the Hebrew being beaten his brother and decided to avenge him. Moses didn't kill the Egyptian in a fit of passion, but in a cold, calculated way designed to avoid the attention and wrath of the Pharaoh. But the scripture goes on to say in Exodus chapter 2 verse 13 through 15, And when he went out the second day, and behold, 
two Hebrew men were fighting, and Moses said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of the Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So, after 40 years of superb training as an Egyptian prince, Moses fled Egypt. The Bible tells us that Moses met and married the daughter of the priest of Midian. Moses then worked as a shepherd in Midian for 40 more years, during which time he developed a personality trait of meekness that the Lord requires in his leaders. And 80 years after God oversaw Moses' birth, childhood, and adult development, Moses was prepared to bring God's ultimate plan for the liberation of Israel into fruition. Now, the Bible records that Moses successfully completed the Lord's liberation plan and led the children of Israel out of Egypt and then began the task for which he prepared all those years. Moses' experience with the Lord in Egypt and Midian gave Moses wisdom, discernment, and meekness, which the Lord requires of any man that he chooses to use. Moses' job was defined in Exodus chapter 18, verse 13 through 16. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now, Moses was the lawgiver, and not just because he brought down the tablets containing the Ten Commandments from the mountain. But Moses was also the one Israelite who had not been a slave, who was raised in the king's house, and who learned the principles of government. And while the other Israelites were building pyramids, Moses was studying the law. Moses was the earthly leader of the nation of Israel because he had the experience and the training. Even so, Every man who is in authority is also under authority, which is why meekness is required for leadership. Without meekness, we tend to forget that even as we lead, we have to be in submission to the higher authorities. All authority is simply delegated authority, and if we choose to misuse our authority, we will lose it. Meekness is the one emotion that is most likely to help us to remember our subordinate status and use our authority well. Now, 
there is an emotion that is the opposite of meekness. And as meek as Moses was, he forgot his position and exercised that emotion. Let us examine the episode that our text relates to reveal that emotion. Now Moses led the Israelites as they traveled through a wilderness on their way to the promised land. There was no food or water available in the wilderness as that part of the wilderness was a desert. There were approximately 3 million Israelites in the multitude and a group that size required quite a food and water supply. Now the Lord supplied the food every morning as the Israelites awoke to find manna, a bread-like substance, on the ground like dew when they arose. Water, however, was a different problem. Numbers chapter 20 verse 2 through 5 records, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Now neither Moses nor his brother Aaron had a water supply sufficient for three million people. The only logical thing for Moses and Aaron to do was to go to see the one in charge of food and water, which was the Lord. Numbers chapter 20 verse 6 through 8 records, So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod. You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. And thus you shall bring water from them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So the Lord instructed Moses to take the rod in order to remind the Israelites that God himself was leading Moses and Aaron. Exodus chapter 4 verse 1 through 5 gives us the history of the rod. Then Moses answered and said to the Lord, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to Moses, What is that in your hand? Moses said, A rod. Then the Lord said, Cast it on the ground. So Moses cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And Moses reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So from the time of Moses' called to service, the rod has been assigned to the Israelites that Moses was actually being led by the Lord. The Lord sent Moses to demonstrate to the complaining Israelites that the Lord was still providing for them even as they wandered in the wilderness. 
Unfortunately, Moses was so exasperated by the Israelites that he did not meekly speak to the rock as the Lord commanded, but took a different tack. Number chapter 20, verse 9 through 11, records, So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Now I'm sure you can see the problem. The Lord did not tell Moses to speak to the Israelites but rather to speak to the rock. Moses disobeyed the Lord, calling the Israelites rebels. In his anger, Moses rebelled against the Lord, committing the sin of which he accused the Israelites. Now, anger is the emotion that takes away our meekness. If we want to improve our decision-making and increase our participation in the kingdom of God, we have to control our propensity for anger, even or especially in situations in which we are provoked. Anyone can remain calm when they are not being tempted to show anger, but the real test of maturity is the ability to be calm and obedient to the word of God in the face of being provoked. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 29 tells us, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11 says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 9 records, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And as we have just read, the Bible makes it clear that anger is a source of an awful lot of trouble. Even with all of Moses' education and experience, his anger at the exhibited immaturity of the Israelites caused him to lose his job. Number chapter 20, verse 12 records, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now Moses could make the argument that he had a reason to be angry, but his argument would not be convincing to God. God tells us not to indulge our anger, even if we consider our anger to be justified, because Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Regardless of that what others have done to provoke us, God can always point out the ways that we have provoked him. But ultimately, God's reaction toward us is not anger, but as John 3:16 and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus Christ is the paradigm for the treatment of those that sin. Rather than anger, Jesus responded with love, giving himself for the salvation of others. And we must each recognize that although we may think that we are good Christians, we are actually saved sinners that need to vigilantly guard against our propensity to allow our anger to become sinful. If we do not, we will find ourselves falling into the false feeling of confidence that tricked Moses. Paul warns us in Romans chapter 12 verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Paul continues in Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 21, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So now when we decide that we are, quote, good Christians, we have the tendency to develop either disdain or anger for those that are not. Even as Moses allowed his disdain for his fellow Israelites to show by calling them rebels. We have to be vigilant to be neither disdainful nor angry with one another in order to overcome evil with good. Our model is Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who was unjustly accused of blasphemy by the Jewish leadership and then turned over to the cowardly Roman leadership that could not find any fault in him but still sentenced him to execution, knowing that he was innocent, simply to satisfy his enemies. The Roman executioners took eight-inch Roman roofing nails with square side and drove those nails through a little hollow spot in Jesus' wrist called a place of distol, through which all the nerves going to the hands passed. The pain of this torture was excruciating and Jesus felt compelled 
to say a prayer. Now, I'm not going to tell you for that which I would have prayed, but listen to that which Jesus prayed. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that is the paradigm. Jesus prayed for forgiveness for those that were killing him. And if Jesus can forgive even those that unjustly accused him and sentenced him to death and then carried out the sentence, how can we call ourselves good Christians when we hold a grudge against someone that does something to us that does not kill us and does not even make us sick? Now, Jesus Christ died. He gave his life on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. Christianity is not just being obedient to the negative commandments given in the Old Testament, but obeying the positive commandment given to us by the example of Jesus, who told us in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Jesus Christ loved us so much that he did not count our faults, but sacrificed himself so that we do not have to worry about our many faults. Jesus Christ has made the way to forgive our sins so that we do not have to concentrate on the minutia of the law, but rather can concentrate on loving one another as Jesus has loved us. So the first thing that we can do to improve our Christian walk from a C to an A is to eschew anger. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 verse 8, and then 12 and 13, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so let you do. So let's improve our Christian walk, moving our Christian grade from a C to an A by bearing with and forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson that you have given us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would govern our hearts. Lord, we find it so easy to become angry with one another. We find it so easy to take offense. We find it so easy to think of others as slighting us. We find it so easy even to imagine that we should be angry when there is actually no malice being practiced against us. And we ask you this morning that you would take that stony, 
that angry heart out of us just this morning and as we go home that you would put back in us a heart of flesh one that is able to forgive our fellow man one that is able to look back on the path that we have walked and recognize that we have not always been where we are now but that you have given us the space to grow in grace and give us the mind to give someone else that same opportunity. We ask you that you would deliver us from the spirit of anger and help us to follow your word to love one another as you have loved us. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.